0: Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17 today. That can be found on page 825 if you're using the Black Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Today in God's word against the the dark backdrop of the disciples' pursuit of worldly power... We're going to see the the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ shine brightly as he explains, once again, his, his forthcoming death on the cross in the place of sinners. And so that brings us to verse 17 here of Matthew chapter 20. So when you find that, would you stand please in honor of God's word and follow along as I read the text we want to study this morning. Matthew 17... Or excuse me, Matthew 20, verses 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. <clears throat> In our text this morning, the disciples are focused on greatness according to worldly standards. But Jesus will show them That true greatness is serving others to the glory of God, and of course there's no greater act of service than that of the eternal Son of God becoming a man and laying down his life in the place of sinners. And so the title of the sermon this morning is The Greatness of Christ's Sacrifice, the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. What I want to do this morning is work through verses 17 through 34 under three headings which will all focus our attention on the death of Jesus Christ. And as I do that, I pray that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and cause us to be gripped By the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, the greatness of what it accomplished, the greatness of Christ's love displayed through his sacrifice, and the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So again, three headings today focus on the sacrifice of Christ. If you're taking notes, here's the first heading. Preparing for his death. Preparing for his death. Look again at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, at this point in his ministry, Jesus has set his face to go toward Jerusalem, He has proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. He's demonstrated the inbreaking power of the kingdom through his miracles and, and authority. And now the time has come for Jesus to go to Jerusalem to willingly lay down his life on the cross in order to rescue his people from their sins. And so the setting here in verse 17 is that Jesus and his disciples are among a large group of people who are heading toward Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. Right, that's what we're going to see throughout really the, pretty much the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is them going to Jerusalem and then the events that take place in Jerusalem. Jesus in verse 17, so he's he, they're among this large pilgrim crowd going toward Jerusalem, but you notice Jesus takes his disciples aside. He wants to have kind of a personal talk with them as they're walking. To privately tell them what is going to happen to him when they arrive to Jerusalem, right? That's where they're headed. So he wants them to be ready. If you recall, ever since the disciples a few chapters ago, by God's grace, uh, recognized and, and confessed that Jesus is the promised Messiah, he, Jesus has, ever since then, Jesus has been preparing them. He's been preparing the 12 for the fact that he would be killed in Jerusalem and raised on the third day. So here in Matthew, Uh, 20, beginning in verse 17, we have what is called the the third prediction of his death. This is the third time that Jesus has been telling his disciples what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. With each new prediction, Jesus gives some some new details, He keeps filling in some more of the picture. So I want us to just kind of quickly, by way of reminder, look at the previous predictions. So turn back, please, to chapter 16, verse 21. This is the the first time. This is right after, again, right after Peter speaking for the disciples confessed that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the Christ. Then look at verse 21. It says, from that time, Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So there was a lot of details right there, wasn't there? That he was going to suffer many things at the hands of the, at the, of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, that he was going to be killed and that he would be raised on the third day. Okay, that's the first prediction. Now flip ahead one chapter to chapter 17, verse 22. Here Jesus gives the second prediction. Matthew 17, says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So really, the kind of the new detail here, if you recall, was that we're delivered. That pointed to the fact that Jesus was going to be betrayed into the hands of these religious leaders, Right? Now here then in chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples a third time what will take place. And you probably notice there are some new details here. Look again with me at verse 18 of our text today, Matthew 20. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he'll be raised on the third day. So again, filling in more of the picture, here he tells us he's going to be condemned to death, so there's going to be some kind of trial, right, that takes place. Here he says he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he also adds the details that he's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. So some very sobering um, details that are being added, just, just filling in the The enormity of of the suffering that Jesus is going to endure there in Jerusalem, which is where they're headed right now. And so with each prediction, Jesus has filled in more horrific details of his impending suffering and death. And, And why is Jesus doing this? He's preparing his disciples for what would happen when they arrived in Jerusalem so that they'll not be shocked when it takes place. But as I thought about that, these, these predictions also remind us just of the resolve of Jesus, don't they? they? They remind us that Jesus fully embraced his mission from the Father of suffering and dying in order to save his people. I mean, think about this. He is, he's headed toward Jerusalem, and he knows what awaits him. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows the intense suffering that he's about to face, and yet he resolutely marches on to Jerusalem for the sake of his people, and for the glory of God. Doesn't that stir your heart to, again, just acknowledge what we're saying? Hallelujah, what a Savior. And if you would look at the context, I didn't really take the time uh, as we just read them, but with the first two predictions... The disciples had a response right there in Matthew 16, the first prediction. Uh, when Jesus said that, remember that's when Peter takes him aside, rebukes him. No, may this never be. This will never happen to you. You're the Messiah, right? And then in, in the second prediction in chapter 17, it says they were greatly distressed when Jesus said this. So with the first two predictions, the disciples have reacted with either objection or, or distress. But this time with the third prediction in chapter 20, the only response we get from the disciples At least the only one that's recorded for us is one of selfish ambition. Look at verse 20 now. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now who are the sons of Zebedee? Well, that's James and John, right? These are two of the twelve. Matter of fact, these are two of the, of the inner circle of the disciples, right? Peter, James, and John are the, the three who had some special experiences with Jesus, got to witness his transfiguration and, and such. And interesting, here uh, we have this picture. It's, it's, their mo- it's James and John's mom who asked Jesus of this, and in Mark's account of this, it's James and John who personally asked Jesus if they can sit at His right and His left. So, we what I deduce from that is that is Peter, or sorry, James and John are behind this, right? They've kind of put their mom up to this. Maybe they thought that, uh, y- you know, their mom would would Jesus would listen to their mom, or you know, this would get them uh, help help. Uh, I don't want to say it. Th- this would help them get what they're after, right? Maybe you know Jesus would be softer toward. Their mom asking and then just them straight out asking. What are they asking? Well, to sit at his right and at his left. The right and left hand of a ruler were the positions of highest power, the positions of of highest authority and honor. Right? So they're already trying to claim their spot, so to speak, in the coming kingdom. Right? But what are they not thinking about? (laughs) Who are they not thinking about, really? They're not thinking about Jesus at all, right? They're not thinking about the suffering that Jesus is about to face. Instead, they're trying to reserve the prime spots of leadership in his, in his kingdom. And again, by God's grace, they, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the promised king. And so, I think, despite Jesus' many predictions of what's going to happen to him, I, I think they're, they're still... Uh, ...kind of have tunnel vision here... ...and they're, they're misunderstanding... They're, ...they're thinking that... ...oh we're going to Jerusalem... ...so that Jesus can overthrow the Romans... ...and so that he can reestablish... ...the, the physical kingdom of Israel... ...the promised messianic kingdom... ...that will last forever... This kingdom of glory and righteousness. And so they're they're getting excited, right? You know, they're thinking this is a coup. This this is reestablishing the promised kingdom. And we want our prime spots reserved in that kingdom. We want to be in the two positions of honor and glory next to Jesus. In the eternal kingdom of God. Now granted, if, if you remember not too long ago. Jesus recently talked about them ruling from 12 thrones. So I guess, you know, we could kind of cut them a little slack. But we still would have to say their, their, their priorities are wrong and their timing is really inappropriate right now, right? I mean, they're, they're being very insensitive to Jesus. Jesus has been detailing, he just once again, gave more details about how he's going to suffer at the hands of the Gentiles and die in Jerusalem. But they're not trying to understand more about that. They're not trying to be a support to Jesus. Instead, they're focused on their hunger for power and status. And so Jesus replies in verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. And again, this is why we see James and John are really the ones behind us because now it's like Jesus is just directing the question to them, right? He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And now if you're taking notes and or thinking with me, we've come to the second heading of, this, of, of the sermon today, right? We've talked about preparing for his death. Now we, we see, secondly, the purpose of his death. The purpose of his death. In these verses that are following, Jesus is going to describe two things that his death accomplishes. And we see the first one here with the mention of the cup. So again, if you're taking notes and you're, you've written purpose, the purpose of his death, underneath that, as the first purpose, you could write this. Jesus bears the wrath of God for his people. Jesus bears the wrath of God for his people. Again, in verse 22, Jesus asks, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Well, what cup is he talking about? Jesus is referring to the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's holy anger against sin. In the Old Testament, God's righteous judgment against sin is sometimes described as a cup. For example, Isaiah 51, 17. There, it's called the cup of God's wrath, and it's later called the cup of staggering. Staggering. God's wrath is so powerful, God's wrath is so overwhelming that anyone who would drink that cup, they, they, it's like they can't even hardly drink it, they just stagger before it. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, it's called the cup of the wine of God's wrath. That's the cup Jesus is referring to. As Jesus heads to Jerusalem, he knows that the cup of God's wrath awaits him. Jesus knows that on the cross, God the Father will pour out his full, unmitigated wrath on his own son, on Jesus. That Jesus will be cut off from the loving fellowship of his Father, instead experiencing only the Father's holy anger and judgment. That he'll be cursed by the Father, he'll be forsaken by the Father. Think about that. Think about the cup that awaits Jesus. A cup so awful that Jesus in himself, in his humanity, will will recoil at the thought of drinking it on the night before the cross when he prays in the garden. Where he'll say, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Out of love for his people and obedience to his Father, Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath. He would suffer and die under God's judgment, being forsaken by his Father, being cut off from his Father. Jesus would suffer and die alone, bearing the sin and punishment of his people. But then, as he has said in these predictions, on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. On the third day, us now, us looking back at the the historical account, we know on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead, showing that Jesus had propitiated God's wrath. Meaning, he had fully satisfied the Father's wrath against all sinners who are united to Christ. That's what propitiation means, a sacrifice that satisfies and turns away God's wrath. Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs, as the Bible says. He would drink it all. Not a drop of wrath would be left for those who are united to Christ through faith. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he talks about we're waiting for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. What, What good news this is, loved ones. It's a reminder to us that if you are in Christ today, if you are in Christ through faith, if you've embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you will never face God's wrath. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt has been paid. Jesus has borne your punishment. God's justice has been satisfied. His holy anger has been appeased. Now God is your heavenly father and he has only love for you. You've been reconciled to God and when you die or if Christ would return first, you will be welcomed into God's glorious presence and be with him forever. What a, what a glorious reminder this is of the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. That by his suffering and death, Jesus has borne and satisfied the wrath of God for his people. Praise God. Now, back to Matthew 20, verse 22. Jesus, again, remember, he asked James and John, right? They're wanting, hey, can we sit at your left and right? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink?" And they say to him, "We are able." It's kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they were sincere. I'm sure they're, in their minds, you know just like we see Peter as well, you know they're, they're, they're pledging their loyalty to Jesus, but obviously they don't understand what's about to happen to him. They don't understand the depths of suffering that awaits Jesus, and in their ignorance, they're actually minimizing what's about to happen to him, right? Again, we just see little little glimpses of, of just further the, the, the suffering that Jesus endured, you know, just people not understanding what's about to happen to him. His beloved disciples, those that he spent so much time with, yeah, yeah, we're able. Nevertheless, Jesus kindly replies to them in verse 23, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. Jesus affirms their resolve and their commitment and says, you will drink my cup. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean they're going to bear God's wrath in the place of sinners. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus' sufferings will be unique in that he alone can pay for the sins of his people, Right? But James and John will also suffer for the sake of the gospel. James will be martyred in Acts chapter 12. John will be exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his identity with Christ. So they will in some way share in Christ's cup of suffering. But Jesus goes on to tell them here in verse 23 that the status and position that they've asked for is not his to give. That prerogative belongs to the Father alone. Then in verse 24, we see how the other ten disciples react to this whole, this whole uh, uh, scheme by James and John. Their whole ambitious plan. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So they're very angry with James and John. Not because they're being insensitive to Jesus. No, I think the ten disciples are, are mad because it's like James and John beat them to the punch. Right? They were probably all thinking the same kind of thing. They're all wanting glory and status in Christ's kingdom. We've seen that several times in Matthew. B- Matthew 18 began with them arguing about, well, well who's the greatest? And they, they asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? I mean, this has kind of been their focus lately. So they're, they're upset that James and John might have gotten, gotten there first. They thought of this plan first. All the disciples are focused on power and authority and pursuing whatever leads to self exaltation. And so Jesus, once again, (laughs) sees this as a teachable moment in verse 25. He called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. What's he saying? Guys, you're acting just like the world. You're acting just like unbelievers, right? You're, you're, you're focused on greatness being equivalent to power and authority and getting to boss people around and lord that authority over people. But look what he says in verse 26. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So once again, we see the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God. Well, let me say it this way. The kingdom of God turns the values of the world completely upside down, right? We've seen that again and again in the Gospels. Jesus says greatness in the kingdom of God is to become a servant, greatness in the world is to is to have this authority and glory and lord it over people and boss people around so they serve you but no greatness in the kingdom of god is to become a servant to all the word there, servant diaconos, right where we get deacons from it literally means one who waits on tables <laughs> so jesus redefines greatness as serving others for the glory of god He he reorients the disciples or or maybe what we would be tempted to view as greatness. He redefines what it means to be great. Greatness is not acquiring the most wealth or power. Greatness is not being up front. Greatness is not getting the, the best seats. Greatness is not having people under you. Greatness is not being the most talked about. No, true greatness, greatness in the eyes of God is putting others' needs first. Greatness is serving others for the glory of God. I hope you all understand that. Young people, I hope you understand that, right? We're, we're tempted to think, oh, someone is great, like, a, like an athlete or a... Or a or a YouTube star or, or a, a movie celebrity, right? Wow, look how many followers they have. Wow, look at all the commercials they do. Look at the awards they win. They're great. Not in God's eyes. Not necessarily because of, they're, they're not great because of those things. No, greatness in God's eyes is to serve others for the glory of God. We need, we need some new heroes, don't we? I mean, ultimately, our hero and, and our praise certainly should go toward the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But let us look around and see those who serve. Let us, let us seek to emulate those who are serving others for the glory of God. And so if we think about this definition of greatness, right? <laughs> greatness is putting others' needs first. Greatness is serving others for the glory of God. And I hope you see now, there's there's no one greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one who gives a greater act of service than the eternal Son of God laying down his life in the place of sinners. Jesus says in verse 28, even as the Son of Man Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love that statement, right? What a, what a great summary statement of why Jesus came. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And who was this who came? It was the Son of Man. Remember, it comes from Daniel 7, God's special anointed king to whom belongs all honor and authority. If anyone could come and demand service, it would be the son of man. But he didn't. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And here we see the second purpose for the death of Christ. Right? We've already talked about how Jesus bears the wrath of of the wrath of God against the sins of His people. Secondly, then, Jesus serves as a ransom for many. The second thing under his pur- the purpose of his death, he serves as a ransom for many. Ransom is the price paid to free someone from slavery. Jesus willingly laid down his life to pay the price to free sinners from slavery to sin. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus delivers sinners from the penalty of sin, from the ruling power of sin, and one day when he returns from the very presence of sin. And so we're reminded of the power, the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, that he frees sinners from sin. We're reminded that Christ's death was substitutionary. His sacrifice was for many. He died in the place of others. But who are the many? Who are the ones set free from the penalty and power of sin? Answer? Those who are united to Christ through faith. Those who are in Christ as the New Testament says. United to Christ through faith. And so everyone who turns from their sin and by faith embraces Jesus as Lord and Savior is set free from sin. They are delivered from the the dreadful bondage of sin. They're set free from the fear of death and eternal punishment. They're delivered from enslavement to sinful desires and passions. By his death, Jesus bore the wrath of God and he pays the ransom for his people. Do you see the greatness of his sacrifice today? Are you reminded of the greatness of his sacrifice? And that leads us then to our third and final heading this morning the proper response to his death the proper response to his death. We've seen preparing for his death, we've seen the purpose of his death, and now let us consider the proper response to his death. We've already seen the, the disciples give a very improper response to his death, haven't we? Focused on themselves, and, but now we're going to see the right kind of response to who Jesus is and what he's going to do. Look at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. So Jesus and his disciples are still headed toward Jerusalem, right? They've left Jericho, and and there's a great crowd following them. Again, you know, there's a lot of people going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And certainly great crowds love to follow Jesus anyways, right? Right? Matthew tells us there are two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now Luke and Mark's account only mentions one blind man and, and Mark actually tells us his name. Do you remember his name? Bartimaeus, right? Now this doesn't mean that Matthew's record is inaccurate. It's just that Mark and Luke focus on the one man and, Jesus, and excuse me, Matthew mentions the fact that there were two blind men. You see that from time to time in the Gospels where they'll just kind of hone in on one individual doesn't mean there weren't also two there so the two blind men hear this great crowd coming in verse 30 look at what they do when they heard that Jesus was passing by right so they obviously they hear Man, there's a great crowd of people why, why, why is there this huge crowd of people more, way more than normal and then they hear well it's because Jesus is going by Jesus of Nazareth is coming by and so look what they do when they heard this. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, yes, Lord was a, a title of respect back then. But the fact that they couple it with, with G- calling Jesus the son of David. This means they're, they're, they're confessing much more than just a, a polite title of respect here with Lord. That Son of David, remember, was the title for the Messiah. It was that Son of David was one of the, the descriptions of the promised king sent from God because God had promised David back in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his sons would be king and rule forever. And so these blind men are confessing that Jesus is that promised Messiah. They believe that he's Lord, they believe that he's the long awaited Savior who has come to deliver his people. No doubt they had heard reports about Jesus. They've heard of Jesus' powerful teaching. They've heard of his authority over demons. They've heard of his miraculous healings. And they probably knew the prophecies about the Messiah, the prophecies that we see in Isaiah, that the promised Messiah, anointed by the Holy Spirit, would bring good news to the poor. He would bind up the brokenhearted. He would proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Remember, that's what Luke 4 records Jesus reading in the synagogue there in Nazareth. Reading that scroll from Isaiah and saying, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So they know that Jesus is the Messiah. They know he's done great things and he could do great things for them right now. So they know that Jesus is able to heal them. They believe that Jesus is more than just a prophet or a special rabbi. They're expressing faith that he is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed king who's going to rule forever. And so they cry out for mercy. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now look at verse 31. As as they're crying out to to Jesus, confessing him as Lord and and Messiah, the crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. (laughs) Right? The crowd's opposition only causes the blind men to cry out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They're desperate. They're undeterred because they know they're in great need. They know that Jesus alone can meet that need. This will very likely be their only encounter with Jesus, their only opportunity. So they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Verse 32, and stopping, right? He doesn't just keep walking. He doesn't just pass by. No, stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus does not ignore their cry. I mean, here he is on the way to Jerusalem, right? He's he's headed for uh, suffering and death I mean, he has a lot on his plate, he has a lot on his mind, but yet he's not too busy. He's not too unconcerned to stop and, and engage with these blind men. What? So he, he calls for the blind men to be brought to him, and he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Notice, that's basically the same question that he asked James and John's mom, Right? what do you want but the blind men are not after power no they they want deliverance by the way when jesus asked this you see this a lot right jesus well even in the old testament you see god doing it god the father right asking questions you know where are you what do you want it's not that he doesn't know right he's He's drawing people out. He's encouraging them to express their faith explicitly. And so verse 33, they, they answer him. They say to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Lord, restore our sight. Be merciful to us, Lord Jesus. We want to see. Verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Once again, as we've seen so many times, we see Jesus have compassion. He's moved with pity. He's moved when he sees people in need and and crying out. So we see the compassion and the power of Jesus. He instantly heals the blind men. They follow him. Now they not only see with physical eyes but notice they're following him they, they they see with the eyes of faith they're following jesus as savior and lord and once again when, when we see these miracles these healings in in the gospels it reminds us that yes these are real physical disabilities that are being healed praise god but they're also pictures of spiritual realities right pictures of what happens when jesus saves people from their sins The Bible teaches that by nature we are all blind in our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, removes the blindness from our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to see our sin. He enables us to see the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the only one who can rescue us. And then he gives us the faith to cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, I need you. I need delivered from from my sin. ...from my bondage. Lord, take away my sins. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. This is how we should respond to the death and resurrection of Christ. This is how we should respond to who Jesus is. To cry out for mercy. And so today, if you're still living in the darkness of sin and separation from God then cry out to Jesus for mercy. If you're still living in bondage to sin, cry out for mercy. Jesus can rescue you. Jesus is the only one who can deliver you. He can deliver you from darkness. He can cleanse you from your sin. He can give you the light of eternal life. He said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this morning, if God is showing you your great need for salvation, then cry out to Jesus. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, embrace him as Lord and Savior. Commit to follow him. Forsake your sin. Say, I'm done living for myself. Lord Jesus, I want to live for you. And I need you. I know I've sinned against you. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to give me new life. And Jesus is loving. He is compassionate. And he's powerful. And he will rescue you. The Bible promises everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Saved from the penalty of sin. Saved from the enslaving power of sin. And one day saved from sin. Sin itself, the very presence of sin. And believer today, I hope, again, this reminds you of of the the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, of what we have been rescued from. We used to follow the ways of the, the world. We used to be enslaved in darkness, trapped in the domain of darkness, as Colossians 1 says. But God in his mercy has rescued us. Now by God's grace, we've been given new life. Now we've been given the light of salvation. Now we follow Christ. No longer enslaved. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and placed in the kingdom of the beloved son. We who were living in darkness have seen a great light. We who are dwelling in the shadow of death, on us a light has dawned. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, he has shone into our hearts and he has rescued us. And so one proper response is certainly cry out for mercy. Another proper response is praise and thanksgiving. And I'll close with a, a third and final proper response. To humbly follow him and serve in his kingdom. To humbly follow him and serve in his kingdom. I mean Christ's sacrifice, the greatness of Christ's sacrifice not only redeems us, purchases us out of slavery to sin. But it also then frees us to be able to serve, right? You see the connection? Now we're not enslaved to selfish ambition. Now we've been given the Holy Spirit who will be sanctifying us and producing in us a desire to serve, a love for God, a, a true love for others. Not what can they do for me, not what can I get out of somebody, but a, I actually love them and I want to serve them for the glory of God. And so again, when you think about responding to this, notice the contrast. Don't be like, the, like James and John in this, right? Don't be focused on self, rather Respond in faith and respond with a desire to serve. To serve others to the glory of God. You want a direction for your life? There's one. By God's grace, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to seek to serve others for the glory of God. I'm going to serve others in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how we should be teaching our kids, right? That's what greatness is. It's not getting the best degree and getting the highest paying job. It's how can you love God and love others? How can you follow Christ and serve in his kingdom? May God help us as parents to be modeling that for our kids, right? And to be teaching them that. Let us be a church then that's marked by humble service, by joyfully serving others in the name of Christ. To the glory of God Because Christ has set us free From bondage to sin Let's pray Oh Father we praise you For your great love for us We praise you for the power of Of the salvation that you have Wrought through Jesus Christ And Lord Jesus we praise you this morning For your Your life, death and resurrection We're we're reminded of Philippians chapter 2 how you Left the glories of heaven And humbled yourself to become a man and become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. What what an amazing act of service. There is no one greater. There's no greater service and there's no one greater than you, Lord Jesus Christ. And You died and rose again and are exalted to the highest place now. And so we praise you and it's our joy to, to worship you, to follow you. Thank you for opening our eyes to see our need. Thank you for for being moved to to rescue us. Thank you for hearing our cry. And I pray you will stir in the hearts of those here today who are still in their sins. Cause them, enable them to cry out to you. Don't let them um, continue in darkness. Give them new hearts, full of faith. And Lord, please be sanctifying us. Forgive us for times when we still are selfish, when we still are focused on what we want and what's best for ourselves. Help us to, may the life of Christ increasingly be lived through us, a life of service, a life of humility. Help us to put others' needs above our own. Help us to serve others for your glory. And Father, will you continue to remind us of the greatness of Christ's sacrifice? Forgive us for when we take it for granted. Forgive us for when we just kind of become whole hum about the gospel. We praise you for what Christ has done. May he continue to be glorified now through this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand please and we'll continue our worship through singing.